So if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. And we are in for quite a study. Matthew chapter 13. We're going to talk about hellfire. And what the Bible really, uh, what it really says, what it really means, we'll try to find out. We'll be, you know, as, we, as always, we want to be faithful to the, to the text, faithful to the Word. What does the Bible really say? So let's bow our heads again and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for such a great group that again has come out to hear your Word and I'm sure they're, ultimately they, they don't really want to just hear my opinion. They want to hear what you have to say. That's the most important thing, is what God says in the Bible. And so we pray together for the spirit of, of truth to guide our minds into the truth, to help us to understand. May this topic be clear and simple and enlightening informative and inspiring to help us to understand you better in this, uh, in this time when there's a lot of confusion about who you are and about your justice. So we pray for your blessing right now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the hot topic of hell. It's, uh, it's no secret that there are certainly a lot of views on this topic that are being expressed from the pulpits of America all around this country. There are different preachers who have different things to say about hell. Some say that there is no hell. Some say there is a hell and it's burning right now somewhere down below our feet, somewhere way down there. Uh, other people say hell is, is symbolic of life on earth. Because life can be hell with all of the hard times that people go through. So there's a lot of different views that are out there. And what we're going to do tonight, I promise you, this is my commitment to you. I did this on at the very beginning. I committed to you that I was going to stick to the Bible. And I'm going to do the same thing tonight. I'm going to read it right out of the book. So we're going to see what does the Bible actually say about this subject. And we're going to start in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13 is a chapter where Jesus told a lot of parables. He told stories about different things. And in verses 36 to 43, Jesus told a parable about a farmer and a field and a harvest. And I think we can relate to that, you know, fields and harvests, uh, gardening time, you know, we're looking forward to planting our crops and getting a harvest. And if you go down to verse 36, after Jesus told this parable, it says, Jesus sent the multitude away, and he went into a house. And his disciples came to him, and they said, declare to us the parable of the tares of the field. And the word tares basically means the weeds. There was a good crop, and then there was weeds. And so the disciples heard the story, and then they said, Lord, would you explain to us what you, just, uh, what you just talked about? What does this mean? So in verse 37, Jesus answered, and he said to them, here's his explanation of the parable. 
He that sowed the good seed is the son of man. He compares himself to the farmer who sowed the good seeds. The field is, is, was a symbol of the world. And the good seed are the children of the kingdom. They represent God's people. But the tares or the weeds are the children of the wicked one. So Jesus divides humanity into those that are on God's side and those that aren't. The enemy that sowed them, that sowed the weeds, is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be at the end of this world. And then he said, the Son of Man shall come forth, or the Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth in that fire. Now, let me just ask you just to start out. When you look at these words of Jesus, especially verse 41 and 42, 40 and 41 and 42, does it sound to you like Jesus Christ believed that there would be a real fire? Does it sound like that to you? It sounds like that to me. I mean, it's pretty, you know, now he's not, he's explaining the parable. So he's not using symbolic language now. He told a story and then he explained it. And in his explanation, he's pretty clear that there is going to be fire and people are going to be burned in the fire. So I'll just tell you right out of the, out of the gate here that I accept the words of Jesus and I believe in a real fire. I do, because that's what he says. But now notice something very important. When you look at verse 40, when does Jesus say that fire is going to come? He said, so shall it be when? At the end of this world. Right. So here's Matthew 13, 40. Jesus said, so shall it be at the end of this world. So at least in this text, the timing of the fire is that it is still coming in the future. It is going to happen at the end. Now, let's look at our, our second text. Turn to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3. This is a very similar passage to what Jesus said. Peter was a disciple of Jesus. He listened to Jesus' teachings for over three years. And in his book, 2 Peter, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this book down and to give us his instruction. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Peter also talks about a fire. Verse 7, Peter said, But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, which is the word of God, they are kept in store, and they are reserved to, and what's that next word? They're reserved to, to fire. Reserved for fire against the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. Now, let's just examine this. Uh, first of all, would you say that Peter believed in a real fire? 
I think so, absolutely. I mean, if you just take the words of Jesus literally, if you take the words of Peter literally, it sure, sure uh, seems to me that he's talking about a real fire. But again, notice carefully, couple questions, uh, where, where does this fire burn? Where will this fire be? Is, is this fire burning now or is it coming in the future? This fire is in the future. And what is the extent of where that fire burns? If you notice the text, it says the heavens and the earth which are now. In other words, the, the atmosphere above us. It's not talk, The word heaven here in this text is not talking about God's throne room. It's talking about the atmosphere that sometimes is quite polluted. Uh, growing up in Los Angeles, you know, I've seen a lot of that. It was a beautiful day here in Idaho and eastern Washington, so we don't see that much smog here. But there's a lot of places in this world where there's a lot of smog and a lot of pollution. So the heavens are talking about the, the atmospheric heavens around us and the earth, which are now, which is the earth that we're walking on. Peter said they are reserved for fire and for the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. In other words, men are going to end up in that fire. People are going to end up in that fire. But it's very clear, according to Peter, that that fire is in the future. And when it burns, it's going to burn everything around us that we see. It's going to burn this, the heavens above. It's going to burn the earth beneath. And as we'll see before this meeting is over, the reason why God does that is because he's going to purify this planet and this atmosphere from sin. He's going to get rid of sin, and this is part of that process. So, real fire, but it's not burning yet. It's coming in the future. Okay, next text, if you go to chapter 2 of the same book, 2 Peter 2, and look at verse 9. 9 is a very interesting verse. And I have a slide here that shows a picture of somebody's tomb, tombstone. Now, I, I hope there's no John Smiths in this room. Are there any John Smiths here? If there are, this is nothing personal. This is just, a, just an illustration. But here's a tombstone here that says John Smith, and the words on the stone say, reserved until the, day of, until the judgment day for punishment. Let's assume that John Smith is a lost man. And this this uh, tomb, tombstone is based upon this verse, 2 Peter 2.9, that says, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. So there's two groups here. There's the godly that the Lord is able to uh, protect and deliver from temptations. And then the other group is the unjust, which would be like the weeds, there's the, those that follow God and those that don't. And the unjust will be reserved until the day of judgment. And what happens to them on the day of judgment? They will be punished. That's right. I'm reading from the King James Bible. Now, if you notice this closely, it says here, here's the text again from the King James, that God will reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. And the point is that the lost will be punished when? 
on the day of judgment? Are the lost being punished right now? No, they're not. They're not being punished uh, with the full punishment. That's not going to happen until the day of judgment. And that would make sense, that God would judge people before he punished them. I mean, why punish somebody before they're judged? First, they have to be, they have to be judged. Now, let me just give you a quick summary of what we have learned so far from Matthew 13, the parable of Jesus, from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, and from 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. This is what we've learned. Number one, there is a real fire. Have we learned that? It's not symbolic. It's real. And number two, it occurs at the end of the world. We found that clearly. Uh, number three, it, it goes on and it, and it burns on the day of judgment. We found that out. And number four, that this fire will not be localized somewhere, but it will burn the heavens and the earth. It's part of God's cleansing of this environment. And number five, that is when the lost will be punished. They'll be punished on the day of judgment after they're judged in the fire that's going to burn up the evil that's on top of this planet. Does that make sense? And that's what the text says. The Bible actually says that. And there's a lot of other verses that teach this, and we'll look at, we'll look at more before we're done. Now, what we just learned is actually quite different from what most, what should I say, conservative, uh, Bible-believing, many times, Christians think generally about hell. If you were to, you know, ask the average Christian who believes in hell, you know, what do they think about hell? And then if you were to go through this list, this is not generally what comes to mind. What generally comes to mind when most people think of hell, they think of a if a fiery place way down below our feet, that a lost soul, as soon as a lost soul dies, they go to hell, right? If they're not saved, if they're not followers of Jesus, and, and if they truly are lost, most people think that hell is way down there. You know, how far down there? Nobody knows. It might be nine miles, 10 miles, 50 miles, but that's what people think when they think of hell. Now, here, here's something very significant, and, that, and it may shock you for, to, to hear this, but there is only one, how many did I say? Only one passage in the entire Bible, in the, in the entire New Testament, that seems to teach that common view. That when a lost person dies, he goes down under the ground, goes way down there to a place of hell. There's only one, a place called hell. Only one verse. And that is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. You familiar with that story? Have you heard of that story? The rich man and Lazarus? Okay, we're going to look at it in just, just a little bit. But that's the only place. That's the story that Jesus told about the rich man who went down to hell and he was burning and the poor man went up into the bosom of Abraham. It's a story Jesus told in Luke chapter 16. But that is the only place that you'll find that concept anywhere in the Bible. Uh, if you read the whole book of Matthew, you'll never read anywhere in the book of Matthew about a person who dies going under the ground to a place called hell. That's not there. It's not in 
the book of Mark. It's not in the Gospel of John, nowhere. It's not in the book of Acts. It's not in any of the writings of Paul. Now, Paul wrote most of the New Testament. He wrote 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Titus, Paul, Romans. He wrote all these different writings. And when you read all the writings of Paul, you will never find anywhere, not even one place, where Paul clearly and definitely teaches that when a lost soul dies, he goes down into the ground, he goes to a place called hell at the moment of death. Uh, it's not in the writings of James, in the little book of James in the New Testament. It's not in First or Second Peter. It's not in the book of Jude. And it's not in the book of Revelation. Not a, not a verse that teaches that exact idea. Now, there's a lot of verses that do talk about fire. But I'm talking about the clear idea that when a person dies, whoop, down he goes, like through a, some kind of a, you know, an elevator, and he wakes up uh, in a place called hell. I don't know if you know this or not. Some of you do, but there are, there are books that have been written by people who claim to have had either dreams or visions, uh, and they've written books. They're on Amazon where they went down to hell, and they saw demons down there, and Satan was down there, and people were tormented down there. They were screaming down there. Have you ever heard of those books? And there's movies about this, too. There's movies, books, uh, novels, and so that's the common view. But the Bible doesn't say that anywhere except one place, which is Luke chapter 16, which we'll look up in just a little bit. When you, when you think of the word hell, there are two underlying Greek words in the New Testament for the word hell. Hell is our English word. The New Testament was originally written in Greek, and I'll show you what those two words are. One of those words is, the Greek word is Gehenna, and it's often translated hell, and it is a place of burning. It's a place where the body of a lost person will burn. In Matthew 5, 29 and 30, Jesus talked about, he said, if your right eye offends you, cut it out, or if your right hand offends you, cut it out it's better to go into, into life uh, with only one hand than, than to have two hands or two feet or two eyes and to go into the place of fire. Have you read that text? And the word there is Gehenna. And it's a place where he says the whole body's going to end up. And, and Jesus is not literally telling us to cut off our hand or take out our eye. He's basically saying if your eyes are leading you into sin, or your hand is leading in, into sin, it would be better for you not to have an eye or not to have a hand rather than go into hell. And he's just trying to show us the, uh, the seriousness of, of sin. And we need to cut sin out of our lives at all costs because sin is very, very destructive. So that's what Jesus is saying. So anyway, the word here for Gehenna is the place where the whole body, he said, is going to go into the fire. Second word is Hades, and Hades is translated, sometimes some Bibles actually just use the word Hades, like I believe the New King James does that, and I think the New International, but the King James often translates it as the grave, the grave. Now, it's easy for us to, to prove this. 
Let's take a look at this text right here, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 55, and we'll see how the word Hades is used. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In this chapter, Paul describes Jesus coming and the trumpet sounding and the dead being raised in the twinkling of an eye, he does this in verses 51 to 55. Describes the trumpet sounding in verse 52, verse 53, how we will be changed on that day. Uh, at the end of verse 52, he talks about the dead being raised. And then in verse 54, he talks about the, this mortal. We have mortal bodies, which will then put on immortality. We're going to become immortal on resurrection day. And when the saints are, are immortalized, in verse 54, it says, So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. And then the saying is, Death is swallowed up in victory. So this is very clear. This is talking about God's people, right? The dead are raised. They become immortal. They get new bodies. They're changed. It's a wonderful day. It's the glorious day. Uh, all the back aches and all the gray hair and all the arthritis and all the heart disease and diabetes and whatever else people struggle with, that's all gone forever. Sound good? And then in verse 55, notice what they say when they come out of the grave. The righteous are shouting, O oh, death, where is your sting? And then it says, O oh, grave, where is your victory? See that? Now, isn't it very clear that this is talking about God's people, right? God's people are coming up. God's people are shouting, O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, grave, where is your victory? Now, let's look closely at this. If you look at the word uh, in verse 55, the word grave, and I'm going to put this up on the screen, this part of the text. How many of your Bibles say, oh, grave, where is your victory? How many of your Bibles say that? Okay, how many of your Bibles say, oh, Hades, where is your victory? Okay, it's just about the same. Did you see those hands going up? About half of your Bibles translates this word grave. And the other half of your Bibles don't even translate it. They just call it Hades. And my point is that it's very clear that in this text, the word Hades means the grave. And Hades, which also is translated hell, some Bibles say, oh, hell, or some Bibles actually say in the margin, where, you know, my Bible says, oh, grave, and the margin says death. Do any of your Bibles for that word Hades or grave in the margin, does it say hell? Okay, your, yours, yours does, and some, some do. And so my point is that the word Hades, have you heard that word Hades before? It, it, it kind of means the underworld, or, or some people think, you know, it's, uh, it's a place way down there. But the Bible uses the word Hades in reference to the grave. And, and the point is that God's people are coming out of Hades because it's clearly God's people. Now, nobody would think that God's people are coming out of a fiery place, right? When a Christian dies, he certainly doesn't go down under the ground to a place of burning. Obviously not. So when the Bible says that God's people are coming up out of Hades, 
Hades cannot mean a place of fire. Hades must mean the grave. It's simply the place where they are uh, when they're resting, as we've already talked about death. You know, they're, they're dead, they're in the graves, and they're waiting for the resurrection. And they come out of this place called Hades. Now, next text is let's go to Revelation 20. And we looked up this in our last meeting. We had a, a Bible study on Revelation 20. We talked about the millennium, things that happen at the beginning of the thousand years, the middle of the thousand years, the end of the thousand years. We looked up different verses about that. And if you look at verses, well, we know in verse 7, it says, when the thousand years are expired. So what we're reading about here now is what happens at the end of the thousand years. And these are certain events that take place. And if you look at verse 12 and 13, it says, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. This, was at the, this is at the end of the thousand years. They stand before God, and the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. We talked about this in the last meeting, that this is the, the final day of judgment, where God, this is the second resurrection. The people who rise up at the end of the millennium, the people who do not come up at the, at the first coming of, of Christ, or at the, at the second coming of Christ. The group that comes up in 1 Corinthians who say, oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, grave, where's your victory? Those are the people that died believing in Jesus, and they come up when Jesus comes again at the second coming. But the rest of the dead do not come up until the end of the thousand years. That's the second resurrection. And when they come up, it says they are judged. Just like verse 12 says, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. So this is all the lost people. They come up, they stand before God, and they face a judgment. Verse 13 says pretty much the same thing, that the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And this would apply to all the people that died in the ocean, people that died in ships, you know, battles, or planes go down in the ocean, uh, you know, people get eaten by sharks, you know, all kinds of things have happened to people throughout history in the ocean, and many people have died in the ocean. But the Bible says that they're going to come up. They're coming up. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man, according to their works. Now, the word here, if you look, it says in verse 13, it says, death and hell delivered up the dead. Do all your Bibles say that? Death and hell delivered up the dead. Now, how many of your Bibles use the word for, for hell there, death and hell? How many of your Bibles say hell? Okay, let me see your hands. Okay, look around and see all those hands. So a lot of people's Bible, a lot of Bibles say hell. Death and hell. My, my Bible does that too. Death and hell delivered up the dead. Okay, how many of your Bibles say death and Hades delivered up the dead? Okay, boy, it's about half, half and half. And the, the Greek word here is Hades. Some translators simply uh, just translate it, or they don't even translate it. They just call it Hades. Other Bibles translate that hell. 
Now, do any of your Bibles say grave? Okay, all right. Timothy, yours does, and any others? Okay, so, so here, here you see my point. Some Bibles call it Hades. Some Bibles call it the grave. Some Bibles call it hell. And so I've got this right here. So the, what's happening is that these people, at the end of the thousand years, they are coming up in the resurrection. They're standing before God. It's judgment day, and they're coming out of, they're coming out of Hades. Now, just like Hades in 1 Corinthians was they came out of the grave, remember? It's the same thing in Revelation 20. First, the righteous come out of Hades, which is the grave. And at the end of the millennium, the lost come up out of Hades, which is the grave. Now, we know that this Hades is not a place of fire. In fact, if you think about it and study this carefully, you'll realize that these people at the end of the thousand years who are lost have never been in any fire yet. They, had, they didn't go to the fire when they died. They haven't been in the fire. They don't come up until the end of the thousand years. And then they get judged. And as we'll see in the next couple verses, it says, then death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. So then they go into the fire. And this is the second death. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So notice the order here. Notice the order. What happens is all the lost at the end of the thousand years are coming out of Hades, which means the grave. Then they get judged, right? That's what it says. It says, The sea gave up the dead that was in it. Death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged. Every man according to their works. So they come up, and then it's judgment day. Following me? And then, after they're judged, then they are punished in the lake of fire. And this is a very logical order that makes perfect sense. People that died today, if they're not Christians, they do not come up in the first resurrection when Jesus comes. They come up at the end of the thousand years in the second resurrection. And then they're judged, and after that, they are punished. Now, think, follow this, this uh, logic through. Wouldn't it be strange if a lost person were to die today, and they were to go down under the ground, you know, fly down there somewhere, and then they were to end up in a fiery place like these movies and these books that people have written I think there's one book called Three Minutes in Hell. Is it three minutes or five minutes? Five minutes in hell where someone apparently had a dream and he saw all these lost souls burning and screaming in the fire. Now, it would be very, very strange for people to die and then go right to hell. And then at the end of the thousand years, they're resurrected in order to be judged. Would that make any sense? Would God punish people before he judges them? And, and would it make sense that, that after they're judged, according to their works, then he sends them back into the fire? So they're in the fire now. They come out at the end of the millennium. They get judged, and then they go back into the fire. Would that make any sense? No. Uh, would it make any sense... Imagine 
Somebody died a thousand years ago, and he was a very bad person. And he went down under the ground, and he went into the fire immediately. And then a thousand years later, somebody else dies today, who was also a very bad person. And he goes down under the ground into the same place of fire, and he's burning. So what that would mean would be the first person who died a thousand years ago would, in the, in the scale of eternity, he would suffer a thousand years longer than the person who died today because he just happened to be unfortunate enough to die a thousand years earlier. Does that make sense? Do people suffer longer because they just happened to die earlier? You know, that would make sense. That would mean that the, the if, and if they're both equally equal, I mean equally wicked, then you've got the first person who's bad and the second person who's bad. They're both the same amount of badness, but the first person suffers for a thousand years longer. Is that, is that just and fair? That's not just and fair. Doesn't make, it doesn't make sense at all. Now, if you look back at the text, at verse 13, it says at the end of verse 13 that they were judged every man according to their works. And then the next verse says they go into the lake of fire. Now think about this. If God is going to judge every person according to their works, doesn't that tell us that the judgment is going to be a just and fair judgment? God is going to look at the people that are lost. He's going to look at their lives and he's going to judge them fairly according to what they've done. Now, we've all done bad things, and none of us can be saved by our works, that's for sure. But, uh, you know, we can repent, and we can believe in Jesus, and the Lord will forgive all our bad works. And then, as Christians, we want to start having good works. We talked about this at a previous meeting because we're now followers of God. We're followers of Jesus. So the Lord looks at our works to see what's really in our hearts. That's what he does. He looks at the works to see what's in the hearts. If we, if we claim to be Christians, but we live like the devil, then our works you know, don't really bear a testimony that we're on God's side. And the people that are ultimately lost, he's going to judge them by their works too. And their works are going to show that they didn't really give their lives to Jesus and they didn't really uh, live for him for whatever reason. And whatever's going to go on on Judgment Day, it's going to be very fair and it's going to be very just because God is a just, fair judge. It says that twice in these verses. At the end of verse 12, it says they're judged according to their works. And at the end of verse 13, it says they're judged according to their works. See that? End of verse 12, end of verse 13. Everybody at the end of the thousand years will be judged according to their work. Now think about this. If they're judged according to their works, then doesn't it make sense that they will then be punished according to their works? So somebody that's really bad is going to suffer longer or have more of a punishment than somebody that's not bad or not so bad. Don't you think there are degrees of badness in this world? You know, think of people like Hitler, people like Stalin. Uh, you know, they, they murdered a lot of people. And then there are other people that aren't going to go to heaven, but they're not nearly as bad as, as some of the most infamous 
infamous people in history. Some people are really bad. Some people aren't quite as bad. And they're all going to be judged according to their works, and they will be punished according to what they've done. Have you ever heard the expression, expression that the punishment will fit the crime? Now, if that's true, just follow this logic. Follow this uh, reasoning. The Bible says, come, let us reason together. If people are going to be judged according to their works, and if the judgment is fair, and if they'll be then punished according to their works at the end of the thousand years, doesn't it make sense that the, that the punishments will vary according to how bad a person is? It's not going to be all the same punishment. And doesn't it make sense that eventually, if somebody has been, you know, so bad that when that, that eventually the punishment would, would run out, depending upon how bad they've been. I mean, anybody that gets punished today for a crime, you know, the, the punishment fits the crime, and once the punishment is, is over, it's over, based on what a person has done. It really makes sense in the whole judicial system. So, as we look at Revelation 20 and look at the great day of judgment at the end, so far, again, this is what we've learned. We've learned, number one, that the fire takes place at the end of the world. We've learned, number two, we read that in Matthew 13 and in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. We've learned that it's real. It happens at the end of the world. And we've learned, and Revelation 20 expresses the same thing, that that's the time when people will be punished. That they'll be judged and they'll be punished at the very end. And it's at that time that God is going to make everything clear to everybody. At the end of the millennium, he's going to put everything on the table. It's all going to be clear. The books are going to be open. The book of life is opened. People are going to see their works. They're going to understand why they're lost. They're going to understand what they've done, what they've rejected, how they've turned away from God, how he's given them lots of opportunities that they've never really fully accepted. And it's all just going to be very, very transparent. You know, at the beginning of this meeting, I told you in the preliminaries about some health challenges that I've had, uh, and I was transparent about that, right? I said, that's the reason why I decided that I wanted to divide up some of these speaking appointments so that I'm not doing all the meetings because I just want to make sure that I don't overextend myself. And praise the Lord, I'm, I'm doing good these days. But I was, I was honest and I was transparent. I told you the reasons. And God is going to do the same thing on the Day of Judgment. He's going to be totally honest, totally transparent. He's going to look at the books. Everybody's going to look at the books and they're all going to see the reasons why they're either saved or lost. Everything will be open and on the table. Make sense? And that's the only way God operates. That's why at the beginning of this uh, section in verse 11, it says, I saw a great white throne. God's throne is white, which means it's pure, and everything he does is just and true. So, so far... That's what we've learned. Now, let's go to the controversial text, which is in Luke chapter 16. Let's look at the one place in the entire New Testament where 
the Bible seems to say something else. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 and onward. This is the place. Uh, I, w- I once met a, a gal. Uh, we met in the Hollywood area. She needed some help. I met her, and uh, I was decided to, to give her a little bit of assistance. She needed a place. She needed some some a little bit of money to get into um, the hostel. They call it a youth hostel on Hollywood Boulevard so she could have a place to sleep for the night. And I was willing to help her out, and we became friends. Her name, I still remember, uh, her name was Esther, and she was a street preacher. <laughs> she was a street evangelist. And as we became acquainted and talked together, uh, I, I learned that her understanding of hell was different than mine. She believed that as soon as you die, a lost person goes right to hell. And she would tell people this on the street. You know that if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to hell. And you're going to go to hell when you die. And you're going to go under the ground to a place where you're going to be tormented. And she believed that with all her heart. And, uh, you know, as nice as she was and as, the, as good of a kind of a friendship we had for a short time, we, we bucked heads on this, on this question. And she just did not believe uh, what I believed, and, and I'm sure that she knew Luke chapter 16, where Jesus told the story about a person going into the fire. And that's what she based her, uh, her belief on. Now, let's just take a look at it. Let's look at it square out. Verse 19, Jesus said, there was a certain rich man. Now, remember that, a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously every day. In other words, he had uh, all the food and everything that money could buy. And then there was a certain beggar whose name was Lazarus, who was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores." Poor guy. Yeah, he was in a pretty bad, pretty bad way. He's poor. He doesn't have any mo- hardly any money. He's got sores, and the dogs are licking his sores. And then it says in verse 22, It came to pass that the beggar died, and he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Remember that. And then the rich man also died, and he was buried. And in hell, he lifted up his eyes being in torments, and he sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and he said, Father Abraham. So here's the rich man now. He's under the ground in hell being tormented. He looks up and he says, Father Abraham. He sees him up there. He says, Have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. And then Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus received evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And beside all of this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed so that they which would pass from here to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from there. Then he said, I pray you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify to them, 
lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. So there's the parable, or there's the story that Jesus told. And this is the main text that is used to support the idea that when you die, you go down under the ground to a place of torment. Are you following me? Now, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Okay, let me, uh, let me explain some things to you. I'm going to give you seven reasons why this is a parable. A parable, which means it's a story. And it has, it has uh, lessons for us to learn, definitely. But you can't take every single detail of a parable literally. And I'll explain this to you. Here's reason number one. Reason one, number one why we know this is a parable, and I think I mentioned this the other, one of the other nights. If you look at Luke 16, 19, which is the very first part of this parable, Jesus starts out by saying, a certain rich man. And when you read the book of Luke, you discover that again and again and again, he uses phrases like this, a certain rich man or a certain this or a certain that, when he told parables. In Luke 12, verse 16, it says that he spoke a parable, and then he said, a certain rich man. So in Luke, it doesn't, it doesn't specify that it's a parable, but in Luke 12, 16, or at least in Luke 16, 19, it doesn't specify that, but in 12, 16, it does. This is a parable about a certain rich man. In Luke 13, 6, he spoke also this parable about a certain man who had a fig tree. In Luke 16, 1, there was a certain rich man and he told the parable of the unjust steward. Luke 19, 11, and 12, Jesus spoke a parable about a certain nobleman. So you get my point, that when it says a certain rich man, and then Jesus told the story, this is the way Jesus told parables in the book of Luke. So that's reason number one, why this is a parable. Reason number two is it's clearly a symbolic bosom of Abraham because when the rich man died, he went down into the fire and the poor man, when he died, he went up into the bosom of Abraham. That's what Jesus said. That's exactly where he went. He said that in verse 22. He was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Now, you can't take that literally because if you take that literally, that means when when a, a person dies... Angels then carry them up and put them inside a bosom. And you know what a bosom is? It's your, your chest. So uh, we, we can't really believe that, you know, Lazarus was actually sticking out of Abraham's chest. You know, like his head was sticking out here or his arms were sticking out here. This is, this is symbolic language that Jesus is using. Reason number two. Reason number three is the rich man is described as being in the body with eyes and a tongue because he's down there and it says he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And then he spoke and he said, send Lazarus, have him come down here and take his finger and and dip it in water and touch my tongue because I'm being tormented in this fire. So he's described as having eyes and he's described as having a tongue, which... You know, we can't imagine that a person literally in their, their full body goes down under the ground into a place of fire. 
This is symbolic language. Another reason is because a real person cannot talk in fire. If the rich man was really down there burning in fire, you can't carry on a conversation when you're, when you're burning in fire. If you don't believe me, just try to take your finger sometime and just touch a stove and then try to talk for just, you know, 10 seconds. And now don't do that. <laughs> but you get the point. When a person does that, you can't just, you know, put your finger on the stove and say, you know, it's really hot. This is really hot. I really should take my finger off this stove. And imagine if you were actually burning in fire, how are you going to carry on any kind of a conversation? You can't do that. This is definitely uh, symbolic language. Reason number five is his request. He said, he said send, Abraham, or send Lazarus to take his finger, put it in water, and touch my tongue because I'm being tormented in this fire. Now think about it. If a person was really, literally, actually under the ground burning in fire, what kind of a request would it be to say, you know, cool my tongue? I mean, if someone's really burning in fire, how much of your body would you want cooled? All of it, right. You wouldn't just want your tongue cooled. You'd want everything cooled, your whole body. Now, there's a reason why Jesus said this, and I'll, fin- I'll show, sh- show you this in a minute. There's a reason why he said, cool my tongue, because the Pharisees had just said something, and their tongues were going to get them into trouble. And I'll get to that. Cool my tongue. Next uh, reason is, can those in heaven and hell talk to each other? If the, if the poor man's down there and Lazarus is up there, do you think that they can just carry on a conversation? Do you think that people in heaven can look down at people in, the, in, in fire and they can just say, yeah, I sure wish you weren't down there. And then the other person looks up and says, oh, I sure wish I wasn't down here. I wish I was up there with you. This is not, this is not realistic to think that it should be taken literally. But again, there is a point to this. And and then point number seven is that the rest of the Bible in Matthew 13, 2 Peter 2 and 3, Revelation 20, and there's many other verses, the rest of the Bible says that punishment is at the end after the judgment. So when you put all these pieces together, it's very clear this is a parable. Now, if it is a parable... Well, why did Jesus tell these points? Uh, If you just back up to verse 13 in chapter 16, Jesus in verse 13 was talking about how you can't serve two masters. And then at the end of verse 13, he said, you cannot serve God and money or wealth. Jesus was teaching about money. And he said, you know, it's not that money is wrong, but you can't serve your money and put money first and still serve God at the same time. Now, the Pharisees, the next verse says that the Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things. And in my Bible, there's a little marginal note that says covetous means money lovers. The Pharisees were uh, rather wealthy, and they loved their money. And when they heard Jesus say, you can't serve God in money, they didn't like that. And so it says... That, the, that says that they derided him. They scoffed at him. Now, how do you think they were scoffing at him? With their hands or with their mouths? With their tongues? So here, here you have a group of rich, covetous, money-loving people who don't like what Jesus said and who started 
mocking him with their tongues. And the very next thing that happens, just a couple of verses later, Jesus then tells a story about a rich man who goes down and a poor man who goes up. And the rich man then looks up and says, please cool my tongue because I'm being tormented in this fire. Jesus was trying to tell the Pharisees that if you guys aren't careful with what you say with your tongue, you're going to end up in the lake of fire. You're going to end up in the wrong place. But he didn't just, you know, he didn't just tell them that straight out right here. He, he told them that by telling them a story. The Pharisees believed that if you have a lot of money, you're going to heaven. If you're poor, you're going to hell. So Jesus reversed it and talked about the rich man going down and the poor man going up and how there's a great gulf fixed, and once that happens, you can't go back and forth. See what I mean? So there's, there's a lot of lessons in this story that are very, very powerful. But, we, but you can't take every little detail literally because it's a parable. It's a story. Now, if you remember uh, in the Bible, at the beginning of our evening tonight, Jesus told a parable about a farmer and the seeds and the field and the harvest, right? And then after Jesus told that story, the disciples came to him and they said, would you please explain to us this parable? Now, it would have been nice if at the end of Luke 16, if the disciples would have listened to this story of the rich man Lazarus and then said, Lord, would you explain that to us? And then we would have had his explanation. But we don't have that in Luke 16. They didn't come to him and there's no explanation. But we do know that in Matthew 13, Jesus told the parable. And we do know that the disciples said, give us an explanation. And we know that, it, that Jesus, as he explained his explanation, he said, as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. So in his explanation of the parable in Matthew 13, he clarified it's at the end of the world. And my conviction is that if the disciples would have said, explain to us the rich man and Lazarus, then Jesus would have explained to them that the people who, who mock him and who are covetous and who don't really love God, this is what's going to happen to them at the end of the world. Make sense? So that's a good explanation for the only place in the entire New Testament that seems to suggest that somebody when they die, they go down into the fire. Now, let's, look, uh, let's go back to Revelation 20, back to the chapter about the millennium. We know when the fire takes place, it's at the end of the world. We know that. It's not happening yet. The big fire is coming, but not yet. And, and uh, next question is, and we know some verses about where it happens. It's the heavens and the earth we've already read are going to burn. We know that. But there's another, another text that tells us that in Revelation 20. Go back to verse 7. It says, When the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, and he shall go out to deceive the nations. We talked about this in the last meeting. He will go out to deceive the nations who are in the four quarters of the earth, 
Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. This is all the lost people who are resurrected at the end of the thousand years. And Satan then goes into them, and he gathers them for a battle, for the final battle. Now, notice verse 9. It says, Then they went up on the breadth of the, and what's that next word? The earth. So where are they? They're on the earth, right? They've just been resurrected. The sea give up the dead. The other people are resurrected. It's this one big, huge, massive body of humanity that's not saved. And then they are um, deceived by the devil. And he gathers them, and they all march toward the new Jerusalem. It says they're on the breadth of the earth, and they compassed or surrounded the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. We talked about this in the last meeting. At the end of the millennium, all the lost, Satan's going to gather them around the new Jerusalem uh, for a battle, thinking that they can conquer the city. But of course they can't. That's all a big delusion. It's impossible. And then it says that fire came down. There's the fire. Fire came down from God out of heaven and did what? And devoured them. Right, fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. I showed you this slide um, in our last meeting on Tuesday. Now, so the fire is mentioned, right? The fire comes down. We know the fire's at the end of the world. But here's a, the key point, is where are the people when the fire comes down? They're on the earth. And they're all surrounding the new Jerusalem, right? They're not under the ground. They're not burning down there somewhere. They come up. Then they surround the city. And they are deceived by the devil to think that they can conquer that city. And then the fire comes and devours them. So when is the fire? It's at the end of the thousand years. Where are the people when the fire comes down on them? They're on the earth. That's what the text says. Where does the fire come from? It says in verse 9, fire came down from God out of heaven. So that's where the fire comes. Now, if the people are, if the people are all around the world, because it says they're being gathered from the four corners of the earth, it says that in verse 8. So they're gathered from all the parts of the world. They're all around the world coming toward the new Jerusalem. And then the fire comes down and devours them. Now, if the fire, uh, if, if the people are all around the world marching toward the new Jerusalem, then obviously when the fire comes down and devours them, how widespread is that fire? It would also be all around the world because the whole world is still... Uh, you know, a polluted place at this point, a place where wickedness has been. It hasn't been purified yet. This is where we're getting right closer to the purification, but we haven't gotten there yet. And the whole, this fire will end up as one big lake of fire. Now, uh, the next question is, we know when it is, we know where it comes from, we know the people are on the earth, but the next question is, how long does it go on? Does it go on forever? Or does it 
burn out? Does it burn up? Well, let's, let's find out. Let's look at this. If you look at the end of verse 9, what does verse 9 say the fire does? Right, it says, fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Do all your Bibles say that? Fire came down from God out of heaven and it devoured them. So I'm going to put that text right up here. Now, if, if, if they're devoured, what does the word devoured mean? How many of you had, uh, did you have food today? I had an apple, a banana, and four Brazil nuts on the way here to the church tonight. That was my dinner, and I devoured it. I did. Nothing left. And all of you who ate your you know, dinner tonight or lunch or breakfast, you devoured it. Now, once you devoured it, how much of your breakfast, lunch, or dinner is left? Nothing. It's all gone. So when the Bible says fire comes down, if the fire devours them, then how much of them is left? There's nothing. Now, let's, uh, let's discuss this a little bit because the next verse seems to say the opposite. The next verse says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the, the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night for how long? Tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, I think my friend Esther, who I met in, uh, in Hollywood, the street preacher, she believed, she believed verse 10. Now, I, I, you know, I look at verse 9, and it says, the fire devours them. But Esther believed in verse 10. She believed, no, Steve, they're not going to be devoured. They're going to burn forever and ever and ever and ever. And we, we sort of went like this in our uh, discussions about this. So let's talk about this. Which one is it? Are, are they devoured or do they burn forever? Do they go on and on and on or do they, is there nothing left of them? Okay, we, we know that the fire takes place at the end. We know it, the people are on the earth. We know the fire comes down from heaven. But now we look at, well, how long does it last? How long does it last? Will people end up devoured? Or will they be tormented forever? Well, uh, let me ask you a question. Which one of those do you like better? <laughs> Any preferences? <laughs> I mean, if you had a choice between uh, devoured or people burning forever, I would hope that if we, had, if we had a choice, that our humanity would say, I like verse 9 rather than verse 10. But we don't want to make decisions based on what we just like. You know, that's not the way to study the Bible. You want to really look at what does the Bible really say, not just what, what we like, what we want it to be. Now, let me show you that there is a big debate on this in the Christian world. Here's a, this is a rather old issue of U.S. News, March 25, 1991. It was quite a few years ago, but it was uh, it's still very relevant. And it was called the rekindling of hell. Record numbers of Americans now believe in the netherworld and in a wide variety of punishments. 
Here's the feature article. It had a picture of what a lot of people think about that hell is. Hell is a place where you go when you die. You go under the ground. The demons are there. The devil's there. And they are torturing people. That's, you know, people have believed that for a long time. Uh, the article is called Hell's Sober Comeback. Three out of five Americans, if you were to survey the Americans, at least in 1991, three out of five now believe in Hades, but their views on damnation differ sharply. Theologians are struggling to explain these infernal images. A contentious debate is raging among evangelicals. So this is a debate within Christianity over the traditional view that the torments of hell are everlasting. So people are debating about this. Uh, and you can see the reason for the debate. The reason for the debate is that verse 9 says they're devoured and verse 10 says they're tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the reason why there's a debate. Some people like verse 9, some people like verse 10. And so they go, clash. You know, Esther believed in verse 10. So, uh, again, the question is, which one is it? Can, can it be both? What do we do with these verses? All right, let me, let me shed some light on this. If you look at verse 9, if you just go back to verse 9, and you read verse 9, to tell me, do you see any symbolism in the ninth verse. Verse 9 says that they went up on the breadth of the earth, they compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Does that sound straightforward and literal, or does it sound symbolic? It sounds literal. It's just, you know, there the people are, they're gathered around the city, fire comes down and devours them. There's, there's really no symbolism in verse 9. Now, what about verse 10? Verse 10 says, The devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast, which has seven heads and ten horns, in Revelation 13, and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Do you see any symbolism in verse 10? There is. Yes, there is. It is the beast. Remember we read the first night of this seminar about the beast who has seven heads, ten horns, body like a leopard, mouth like a lion, feet like a bear. So it's very clear that uh, the beast is symbolic. So, so let's just you know, consider this. Remember we know about the rich man and Lazarus, right? There's a lot of symbolism in there because Lazarus was not sticking out of Abraham's chest. It was a parable. There's symbolism. Symbolism is not to be taken literally. There are lessons from the symbolism, but it doesn't mean that you take every word exactly literally. So this is a significant to me that verse 9, where they're devoured, has no symbolism. But verse 10, about torment, day and night, forever and ever, it does have symbolism. Let's look at another verse in Revelation. Turn to chapter 14. Revelation 14. I think there's three verses in the book of Revelation that talk about torment day and night forever and ever. Chapter 14, verse 11. Talks about those that get the mark of the beast. And we have a meeting coming up on the mark of the beast. It says, The smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image, 
and whoever receives the mark of his name. So here's a consequence to getting the mark of the beast. And it says that the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever. So there's a, another one of those forever texts. But again, if you look at the verse, do you see any symbolism there in that verse? Verse 11. Do you? Okay, I see people going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There is. Uh, the symbolism is the beast. Again, the, the smoke of their torment ascends up forever, those who worship the beast. So there's symbolism in that verse too. Now here's, uh, I think this is the only, this is the last one. Revelation 19, verse, verses 2 and 3, talks about this woman, this harlot woman, who's described in Revelation 17 as riding a seven-headed, ten-horned beast. She's got a golden cup. She sits on seven hills, clearly a symbol. There's not going to be a woman like this really literally running around this planet giving people, you know, something to drink from her golden cup. This is symbolic. Chapter 19, verse 2 says, True and righteous are his judgments, for he has, he has judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again, they said, these are the saints of God, they said, hallelujah, and her smoke rose up for how long? Forever and ever. So here's the third time in Revelation. We've got it in Revelation 20, verse 10. We have it in Revelation 14, 11, And we have it in Revelation 19, verse 3. Here's this language. Her smoke went up forever and ever. And uh, Esther, you know, she would have believed this verse. She, she would look at these forever texts and she would say, you see, Steve, the fire goes on forever. Why don't you believe that? That's what she would say. And my response to that is, do you see any symbolism in this verse? Look at it carefully. It says, her smoke went up forever. And who is her? She's the woman riding the beast, holding a cup, the seven-headed, ten-horned beast. She has a name on her forehead, Mystery Babylon. Do we take that literally? Do we believe there's going to be a woman literally running around that ABC and CNN and NBC and all the major networks, you know, are, are not going to talk about politics anymore? They're going to talk about this woman that's got her, uh, this on her head and she's running around the world, riding a seven-headed, ten-horned beast, you know, going, whoa, beast. Do you think that's literally going to happen? Obviously not. These are symbols in the book of Revelation. There's not going to be a place somewhere where you're going to see this woman burning and look down and see her literal smoke come up and go up in the sky. This is the symbolic language of Revelation. Just like Jesus talked about the, the poor man going into the bosom of Abraham. There are things in the Bible that are literal, and there are things in the Bible that are symbolic, and we have to interpret them correctly. And so it's very clear. So here my point is that all three references in Revelation that seem to say that people are going to be tormented forever and ever and ever, all three of those verses all have symbolic language. See my point? 
every single one. Now, there's a lot of other verses in the Bible that talk about fire and burning, and these verses have no symbolism. And there's a whole lot more, a lot of them. There's a few verses that seem to say burn forever with symbolism, but there's other verses, if you look at like a scale, there's so many verses on the other side that don't say that, such as this one. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1 says, actually, why don't we read this in our Bible? I want you to see this. Malachi is right before Matthew. It's the last book of the Old Testament. Right before Matthew, last book of the Old Testament, chapter 4, which is actually the last chapter of the Old Testament. Chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Behold, the day is coming that shall burn as an oven and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that is coming shall, what, what will it do to them? It will burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root or branch. Now, who's talking here? Is this says Steve Wahlberg? Or is this says the Lord? This says the Lord. The Lord says the big day is coming. It's going to burn on that day. We've already read those verses in 2 Peter, Matthew 3, Revelation 20. And, and it's going to leave them. When, when that day is done burning, how much is going to be left of the proud and the lawless? It says they will leave them neither root nor branch. Now, let's say that this was a real tree right here, this little um, plastic bush. If this was a real tree, there would be root un roots under the ground, right? And then you've got some branches right there. Now, if this, if this tree were to burn up so there's no roots left and there's no branches left, how much is left of it? There's nothing left. When God says root or branch, they're burned up, that's his way of saying, it's over. They're gone. They're totally gone. Now go down to verse 3. Verse 3 is talking about the righteous. It says, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be, and what will they be? They will be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, says Steve Wahlberg. No, it's not. this is not Steve Wahlberg talking this is the Lord talking. The Lord says that they're going, to be, they're going to be ashes. Now, if they're ashes, how much is left of them? There's nothing left. That's right. There's nothing left. Uh, Jude 7 is another text that people use. Let's look at that. This is right before Revelation. Right before Revelation. See, there's a few of these verses that people use to support the idea that the fire burns forever. They use the rich man and Lazarus. They use the devoured, I mean the, uh, not the devoured, but the tormented text in Revelation. And they also use this one, Jude verse 7. Jude is right before Revelation. It says, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner 
giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, they are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of what? Of eternal fire. Now, people say, look, you know, Esther would say to me, she'd say, look, Steve, it says eternal fire. She'd look at me and she'd say, don't you know that people who are not saved, they're going to go down into the fire and they're going to burn forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever because the Bible says eternal fire. That's the way she would interpret this verse. But let's take a closer look. Just, you know, calm down and take a closer look. Uh, This is talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. Were they destroyed in the Bible in the Old Testament? They surely were. How were they destroyed? They were destroyed by fire. And that's what this verse says. They were destroyed by fire. The vengeance of eternal fire. Now, uh, are Sodom and Gomorrah burning right now? They're not. They're not burning right now. You read in Genesis 19, that's where the fire came down upon those cities and there was a smoke that went up and Abraham saw that smoke and God burned up those cities. But they are not burning today. What this means is that the eternal fire actually went out. Sodom and Gomorrah were burned by eternal fire. And what it means by eternal fire means it was a fire that came from God that could not be put out. And nobody could put it out. But Sodom and Gomorrah aren't burning today. Sodom and Gomorrah are two. Are the, they've actually, archaeologists have found the ruins of those cities just south of the Dead Sea. They've, they've found sulfur balls. They found uh, what's left of those cities. There's very little there because they were burned. They were burned up. Now, notice in 2 Peter, before I get there, it says here that, that was Sodom and Gomorrah were burned with eternal fire as an example. Now, if that eternal fire came down and burned them up, and if it's not burning today, that's an example of what's going to happen at the end. See, that's the example. Now, if you look at 2 Peter, it's very interesting, very important. You can go back a couple of pages to 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter talks about the same thing about the fire that burned up Sodom and Gomorrah. And in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, it says, God turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. And he condemned them for an overthrow, making them an example to those who afterwards should live ungodly. So Jude says God destroyed them with eternal fire. Peter says that that same fire turned them into ashes. And there's another verse I don't think we have time to look it up right now, but it's in Lamentations 4, verse 6. It says that he burned Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes in a moment. In a moment. So eternal fire burned those cities into ashes in a moment. Following me? So eternal fire does not mean it goes on forever. Eternal fire means it was an eternal fire from God that did its job. That's what it means. And it turned them into ashes, so there's nothing left. Nothing left. That's what the text says. Here's another verse. This is a really big one. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28 is a very famous Bible chapter talking about the devil. 
and what is going to happen to the devil. In Ezekiel 28, verse 15, God said to Lucifer, you were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created until iniquity was found in you. He was a perfect angel, but then he sinned. And then at verse 16 describes what happened to him. Verse 17 says, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. He became a proud angel. Verse 18 says, you have defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your traffic. Therefore, now this is what God says he's going to do to the devil. Therefore, I mean, I'm in Ezekiel 28, 18. Therefore, will I bring forth a fire, so here's the fire, from the midst of you, and it shall devour you, and I will bring you to what? To ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold you. So this is clearly talking about Lucifer's end. And what does God say he's going to do to him? He's going to, turn, he's going to devour him, and he's going to turn him into ashes upon the earth. And he's going to do it at the end of the thousand years. And the, and the next verse says, And all they that know you among the people shall be astonished at you. You shall be a terror and never shall you be any more. Now, I don't know what Esther would do with this text. We didn't really have a chance to open our Bibles and look at these verses. But, the, you know, who, who, of all the, the bad people in this world, who's the worst of them all? It's the devil, right? He's the worst of them all. And the Bible says that when his punishment is finally over, which is going to be longer than anybody else's, what will, what's going to finally happen to him? He'll be ashes and he will be gone. He will be gone for good. Doesn't that sound good? <laughs> that God's going to get rid, he's going to get rid of the devil. That's what the Bible says. So if the devil's going to be gone, you know, no human being is worse than the devil that would go on longer than the devil. No way. Devil's going to be gone, and he's going to be gone for good. We read this verse the other night. What was Satan's very first lie that he ever told in the Garden of Eden? He told Eve that if she ate the fruit, you will not surely die. And we read this the other night, that the very first lie that Satan ever told in the Garden of Eden is that if you sin, you won't die. In other words, you'll go on forever. On and on and on and on and on forever. And if that were to be, if that was true, then that would mean sin would go on forever. Sin would be eternal. But God's not going to, he's not going to allow that. This is, is this the truth or is this a lie? It's a lie. These are the words of the devil. The devil said, you won't die. And if you think about it, the belief, now follow this closely the belief that souls will burn forever is based 
on the belief that the soul will never die. And where does that belief come from? That belief, that belief comes from the devil. It's the first lie that Satan ever told. That you'll never die even if you live in sin. And that is not true. That is not true. That idea comes from the serpent and Eve believed it. Some people say, Steve, if what you're saying is right, can all the good people in this world be wrong who believe that people die and they go to hell and they burn forever? How can all those good people be wrong? And my response is, Eve was a good person. She was a perfect person, but she was wrong. Right? She believed something that wasn't true. So if a person, if a perfect person can believe it, then it can still happen today. Now, before I finish this, I'm, I'm not far away from being done here. Uh, let me show you another little picture here. And in all these verses, I've been, I've been trying to talk to your, your mind, showing you, you know, Matthew 13, 2 Peter 2, Jude 7, Ezekiel 28, Revelation 20, looking at the symbolic parts, looking at the literal parts, talking to your head. I've been talking to your head, right, in all of this. But now I want to talk, I want to, talk to your heart. I want to talk to your heart. This is a picture, I think I showed you this on night three of this seminar where I told my story from Hollywood to heaven. This is a picture of my mom. She's not alive anymore. This was a long time ago. And this is me over here, little Steve. And this is my brother, Mike. Just talked to my brother, Mike, on the phone yesterday. Had a long conversation. He's still alive. He's a radiologist in Indiana. And we had a, had a good conversation. Now, at the time that this picture was taken, my family was not a Christian family. I grew up Jewish in the Hollywood Hills, a very secular Jewish home. We never read the Bible. We didn't pray. Um, and at this point in my life, I was, you know, I, I'd never heard of Jesus. And my mother was not a Christian, and I'm, you know, sad to say my mother never believed in, in Jesus, even when she died. Now, my dad did, but my mother didn't. And, I, you know, I give my mom to the Lord, and I, I just hope that somehow she may have mercy, he may have mercy on her. I don't know what actually happened inside her head. She, she, um, she fell, and she had a double stroke, and she was pretty much out of it. But she did hear me. She could nod, and she could hear when I quoted John 3.16 to her on her bed before she died, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And I told her, I said, Mom, I hope to see you in heaven. And she, she heard that. And I don't know what happened inside her head, you know, during those, during those final moments. I can only hope and I can pray. But let me ask you, let's say my mother isn't saved. 
Do you think because she didn't believe in Jesus, never really accepted him as her savior, that my mom, that God is going to judge my mom, judge her justly, judge her fairly at the end of the millennium, and that she would, and then he would decide, Sandy, it's now your turn to burn for all eternity. Does that sound just and fair to you? You know, what, what about me when I was a little kid? What if I, you know, got on a bike and I rode, rode around and, and some drunk driver hit me and I died at the age of six or seven or eight and I didn't believe in Jesus? What would happen to me? You know, what happens to all the people? Now, I believe in it, that God is going to judge people fairly and he's trying to get people into heaven, not keep them out. He's trying to get as many people in as he possibly can. But my, my point is, what's going to happen to those who aren't saved? What's he going to do to those people? Is he, going to, is he going to put them in a fiery hot place and is he going to burn them for all eternity? Does that make sense? Does that sound just? Does that sound good on the part of God? Does some people say, you know, Esther might say to me, she might say, but Steve, God is just and sin is serious and he must punish it. And my response would be, I believe God is just, and I believe sin is serious, and I believe he's going to punish it. I do. But does it sound just to you to take a life that lived 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, you know, 70 years, and if they don't believe in Jesus, then, then to punish them throughout all eternity, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever, so it's never going to end? I mean, never end? Does that sound fair to you? Does that sound just? Is that the kind of God you want to live with for all eternity? And that's not what the Bible says. I'll show you what the Bible says. The Bible says that God so loved the world, and that's the whole world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not, what? Perish, but have eternal life. What does perish mean? It means it's gone. Just like devoured, it's gone. Just like ashes, it's gone. That's what, and these are the words of Jesus. I believe in the, and do you see any symbolism in this verse? No, this is just Plain, straightforward, forward talk. For the wages of sin is what? Is death, the Bible says. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. How many of you believe that Jesus paid the full price on the cross for your sins? You believe that? Isn't that basic Christianity? But now think about this. If the price of sin is eternal burning and suffering, then the only way that Jesus could truly and fully pay the price would be if he would burn forever. That's the only way. If he didn't burn forever, he's not paying the price. If that's what the real price is. But that's not what the real price is. The real price is not burning forever, the real price is death, that you're gone, you're done, your life is over. 
And Jesus somehow paid that price. He died. But because he was innocent and because he had never sinned and he just took the sin of the world in some miraculous way through God's infinite love and grace, Jesus came back to life. He rose from the dead. Hallelujah. That's the good news, the good news of the Bible. And and it's the gift of God that he's offering us, which is eternal life. Do the wicked have eternal life? Do the lost get eternal life? No, they don't. It's only those who believe in Jesus that get eternal life because we receive the gift. Now, if we don't receive the gift, if we reject the gift, then what's left? What's left is death because God can't save us if we consciously and willingly reject his gift. And at the end of the thousand years, we're told that people will eventually end up in the lake of fire at the end of the millennium, and it says this is the second death. And the second death is a final death at the end of the thousand years. They're resurrected, they're judged, they understand why they're lost, they see that God is just and fair, he tried to save them, he did everything he could to save them, but they rejected that, and now there's nothing more that God can do, and then they're punished justly and fairly for what they've done, They end up in the fire that God sends to purify this planet, and they eventually experience the second death, which is a death that has no hope of a resurrection. It's the final death, the second death, and that's it. And I believe God will weep. He will not not enjoy a minute of this, but it has to happen because God is going to get rid of sin. He's going to cleanse his universe from sin. He's going to get rid of the devil and his angels and sin and those who have chosen that they don't want him, that they don't want him. And finally, the devil, his angels, and all the lost, and this this earth will all be burned up, and there will be nothing left. And that's what the Bible says. Now, let's finish Back to Revelation 20 and 21. I'm going to close with this. When you go back with the very end of Revelation 20, the very last thing that Revelation 20 says, the very last thing at the, at the end of chapter 20 is that whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. See that? So the lake of fire ends chapter 20. And the very next verse, what does the very next verse say? John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. So there's the lake of fire in verse 15, and then there's the new earth in verse 1. And it says the heaven and the earth had passed away. Now, where was that fire? Remember, because the people, remember, were on earth. The fire came down and they were on earth. The fire burns the heaven and the earth, Peter said. And then it says there's a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth are gone. And if the first heaven and the first earth are gone, then what does that say about the fire? It's gone. 
That's right. It's gone. So God uses the fire to cleanse his world. And once he's cleansed it all, then he starts over. And then he makes a new heaven and a new earth. And that's where we, by the grace of God, get to be. See that? That's where we get to be. Now, verse 4 is my last text. Verse 5. Verse 4 and 5. Look at this. Verse 4 says, God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things have passed away. Now listen to this. Listen to me. If hell burned forever, there would always be sorrow. There would always be crying. There would always be pain somewhere. But God says that's not going to happen. God doesn't want pain and suffering and sorrow in his universe forever. No way. He wants to get rid of all that. So it's gone. It's not going to be somewhere in his universe while we have a good time in the new earth. That we know that somewhere down under the ground or who knows where, there's going to be people that you may know that are burning consciously and in torment forever. How, how much could you enjoy heaven if you knew that. I couldn't enjoy heaven if I knew that, you know, someone that I loved was, was suffering like that at the time that I was with Jesus. And Jesus wouldn't enjoy it. Nobody would enjoy it. We'd all be miserable forever. But it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's all going to be gone. Verse 5 says, He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Everything is going to be new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. What I'm sharing with you right now is true. This is not a lie. This is true and this is faithful. Sin is going to be gone and God's universe is going to be filled with love and compassion, and goodness for all eternity. Sound good? Uh, before we pray, let me tell you a quick story. One time I held this seminar in a little town called Woodbury, New Jersey. Maybe it wasn't quite so little. But I had a meeting there, and there was a, there was a Jewish man coming to my meeting, and his name was Corey. And I didn't know it, but that he was, uh, he was not a Christian, but he was coming to the seminar. And night after night, he sat out there in the audience, just like you are, and he listened, point by point. And finally, when I got to this subject and explained that hell does not burn forever, that people are going to be burned up, that God is good and just and fair, and uh, he's going to clean his universe so that it's all, all that is over. When that meeting was over, Corey came up to me and he grabbed my hand. He shook out, he reached out his hand and he grabbed my hand. And he said, Steve, Steve, he said, now I can believe. Now I can believe in a, in a good God. And then he went home that night. And the next night he came back to the next meeting. 
And after that meeting, he came up to me again, and his face was just was glowing. And he said, Steve, he said, last night, after the meeting, I went home and I got on my knees and I prayed and I asked Jesus to come into my life and to be my Savior. And then he looked at me and he said, praise God. He said, I'm born again. Praise God. I'm born again. And what was stopping him from becoming a Christian was the, was the thought that he had heard that the Christians believe the Christian God is going to burn people who don't believe in him for all eternity. And that belief stopped him from becoming a Christian. But once that belief was clarified to his mind, the doors were wide open. And he said, Jesus, I believe in you. And he became a Christian. At the end of that seminar, we had a baptism. And uh, he was baptized. And his mother was there, his Jewish mother. And uh, I remember looking at her and talking to her, and she said, uh, she said, Steve, I don't understand what happened to my son. She said, but it's good. It's good. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, oh God, thank you for clarifying in the Bible the truth of your character, of the just judgment, the just reward for sin, and how much you love us and how much you want us to live forever with you where sin and pain and suffering are gone. Please help us to believe in you as a God of love, as a good God. Help us to read the Bible correctly to understand the symbolism and to understand the straight, simple truths. Lord, bless us all. Help us to reveal your character to others and help use us to save as many people as possible uh, in these final days so we can all be with you when Jesus comes. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message by Steve Wolberg. We feel privileged to be a part of God's commission to share the gospel with the world. You too can be a part of our gospel outreach team by supporting messages just like these with your financial gifts. We strive to be careful with every dollar that we receive, knowing these donations are sacred gifts to build up God's kingdom of grace and salvation. To find other great resources or to donate online, go to whitehorsemedia.com or you can call us at 1-800-78-BIBLE. That's 1-800-782-4253. You can follow us on Twitter at Whitehorse7 or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Steve Wolberg. That's Steve, W-O-H-L-B-E-R-G. If you prefer to contact us by mail, write to Whitehorse Media, P.O. Box 130, Priest River, Idaho, 83856. Thanks for your support, and may God richly bless your day.